Good morning. Let's do some word association. I'll say a word, and you come up with some words that go along with it. Joy. Don't say them out loud, but what words would you associate with joy? Paul's letter to the Philippians has a lot of words running through it if you read the text. And you wouldn't expect that joy would be the theme of the book, but it is. When we see Paul's conditions as he writes the letter, uh, we are surprised by this joy. Uh, Paul is imprisoned, and he's cut off from those he cares about. He's sitting alone while the churches he has planted are attacked by those attempting, attempting to alienate believers from him. And yet, joy is the theme of the letter as he writes to the Philippians. In order to answer the question, why is this man smiling? We have, let's consider a little bit of the history of his relationship with the Philippians to, to try to find a sense for why this bond, why this joy, especially in the, in the middle of an experience of prison that is so unjoyful. Um, in AD 51, about halfway through the first century, in obedience to a vision, Paul left the Middle East and set sail for what we now call Europe. His first stop was a Roman colony called Philippi. Um, he met a group of Jewish women by the river there. He proclaimed the gospel, found them to be receptive, and established the first Christian congregation in Europe. Paul's experience in that city were powerful but not pleasant. Uh, he was beaten with rods and imprisoned. And again, in the midst of this experience, we're surprised by his joy while having been beaten while singing and praising God, a miracle occurred. He was miraculously released, and as a result, even the jailer was converted and presumably joined the congregation of believers. About a year later, Paul was on another trip, his third mission trip. And his purpose was to raise money from Gentile churches to relieve the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea uh, to show in a concrete way that his work did not entail separation from the Jewish Christian church. He still very much wanted to show his support. And as soon as the Philippians, who were not wealthy, as soon as they heard about it, they insisted on participating in his work. Paul completed this project, collecting money from Gentile churches, bringing this money to Jerusalem and distributing it as it was needed to, again, the destitute Jewish Christians who lived there. Uh, Jewish opponents managed though, to get him imprisoned, and for two years he awaited his fate in Caesarea. Finally, he appealed to the emperor himself, and because he did so, he got a passage to Rome. Within a few months of his arrival in Rome, the Philippians became aware of his situation, and true to form, they really cared about him. Their relationship with him was not just um, stilted and sterile. It was warm, and they raised a monetary gift and sent Epaphroditus to give it to him. He was at a loss to express to a church that had given so sacrificially, and what he decided to do was to write a letter. And he sent it back to them with Epaphroditus, and we read then Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. It's in your worship folder if you'd like to follow along. Paul writes, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, 
all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Uh, when it says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, it is the most intense way of expressing somebody's feelings. It's, it's, you can't find a more picturesque, a deeper way to communicate a heartfelt longing for someone. Paul goes out of his way to express how much they mean. And then as is frequent in letters, having gone through this introduction, he then goes on to say how he prays for them. In several of his letters, he does so. And what we find is that he has one request, one main request, that have three results. You were to pray for somebody, and we're limited to one request. What would you pray? A request that is at the root of the issue, that if this request is met and answered, that many other things will emerge from it. It's one cause with three effects. And this is what he says, the major request, it is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And what he prays for them as the root issue is a knowing that leads to loving. A knowing that leads to loving. What type of knowing leads to loving? We know that loving is his purpose for us. It's what he wants to catalyze. And what we see here is that there is a knowing that would cause love to abound. What does God want you to know? And if you know this, and if you make room in your mind for it, it will open the door to loving. That's what Paul prays for them, that they would have this knowing so that they could do this loving. Um, this knowing that leads to loving, that's the one request, a knowing that leads to loving. That has three um, results so that you may approve what's excellent. Having a knowing that leads to loving allows one, to test and approve that which is of lasting value. Not everything has lasting value. We get caught up with things that don't, and yeah. But knowing that leads to loving allows us to test and approve those things that are of lasting value. That's one thing that knowing leads to loving gives us. The second thing is to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It has the idea of being exposed to the light of his face and because being exposed to the light of his face in a position where you don't stumble, if you see God clearly, then it leads to be allowing us to walk with him closely, not seeing God's face clearly. When we talk about fog, fear, obligation, and guilt, when fog gets in the way and, and we can't see God's face clearly, we do end up stumbling. And so what he prays is that this knowing lead to loving would allow them not only to test and approve what is of lasting value, but which would allow them to um, live in a way that they would be healthy and that they would grow. And he talks finally about being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, right standing with God, 
when that is in place and solid concrete, when it's known, leads to the fruit of righteousness. It's Thoreau said, for every thousand people whacking away at the leaves of evil, there's one person striking at the root. When you get to the root of a problem or the root of a situation, then you've really gotten to the meat of things. What Paul prays for them is what they need at the root is to have this knowing that leads to loving. That is what would allow them to test and approve what's of lasting value. That will allow them to be pure and blameless. That would allow them to bear the fruit of righteousness. Let's spend some time considering the fruit of righteousness. We're going to jump from here, and, and we're going to see what Peter has to say about it. There's a number of passages that talk about the kind of lifestyle that knowing God would lead to. And Peter has an interesting one in Second Peter chapter 1. It's in your worship hall. Let me read it. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may part, be, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He talks about some of the things that make up the fruit of righteousness. If we are being brought along, carried along by a knowing that leads to loving, what kind of things will we be doing? How will we be acting? And Peter lists a, a number of virtues. He talks about faith leading to virtue, leading to knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and it shouldn't surprise us, love. Faith and love are the bookends of the Christian life. It's faith, ultimately, that needs to lead to love. Faith, knowing, love, loving, a knowing that leads to loving. And it begins with faith. That's why Peter doesn't begin by describing the fruit of righteousness in this passage. He talks about it. But he begins by identifying the power that allows us to bear fruit. That's a good idea. Is there anything more frustrating than having a what but not having a how? Being taught what you should live like but not knowing how you can find the power to live that life? Is there anything more frustrating than having a path that you'd like to walk on but not know how to get the power to walk on that path? being told the kind of things that should manifest themselves in your life, but not knowing how to find the power so that those things can be produced. And that's why Peter doesn't start 
with the fruit. He starts with how to find the power that leads to bearing the fruit. And he talks about his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God provides us with that everything we need for life and godliness. And he tells us not only that this is true, but again, okay, God's provided, but how do we plug in? How do we turn it on? How do we access it? He tells us where this power is channeled, and that's a really good idea. Is there anything, again, frustrating? If you've got a very powerful thing, don't know how to turn it on. This thing, if you have this machine, and it's going to do everything you want it to do, but you just can't find the way to even turn it on. A machine that promises to do a bunch of things, if you don't know how to do it on, it's not going to help you a lot. And it's the same thing with power. How do we access it? If there's a power that allows us to bear the fruit of righteousness, how do we plug in? How can we avail ourselves and access this power? Um, the story of a logger who cut down trees using manual saws. A chainsaw salesman sold him a chainsaw, neglected to show him how to start it. He assured him, though, that it would make a world of difference. He returned only to find that the chainsaw had been laid aside and the man was once again felling trees by hand. Uh, the logger confronted him, told him, this chainsaw is absolutely useless. And they, he picks it up and started to rub the chain across the tree. You know, this, this, this thing doesn't work. How am I supposed to get anything done this way? Um, Peter tells us how to access the power that will allow us to bear the fruit of righteousness, how to turn it on. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's a reason Peter focuses on the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Excellence is also found, it's translated in a number of different Bibles, goodness, glory and goodness, glory and excellence, glory and goodness, same thing. Excellence and goodness, it's, it's a similar, same, either word is acceptable. We find glory and goodness elsewhere, though. Glory and goodness relates to an experience Moses had with God. I'll just read, Moses said to God, now show me your glory. And he wanted, God said, I'm going to send you on a journey. And Moses very boldly said, okay, if I'm going to go from here to there, I need to see you. I need to know you. I need to know that I'm not going alone. He knew that it was going to be difficult. And he knew that he was not going to go forward if God didn't go with him. I need to see your glory. I need to see you. You know what? That's a really good prayer. If there's one prayer that I, I'll, I'll write a lot of prayers out, and it's, it's one thing that every time I write it, I can, there's some juice in it. Reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself to me. If we're going to know him, it's because he reveals himself to us. We can have a lot of notions about God. But, not, but the good news is God is self-disclosing. And if you sell him, reveal yourself to me. He wants to do that. 
You don't have to twist his arm. God longs to be known. And that's why Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. God caused his glory and goodness to pass in front of Moses. And what point then is Peter making by an obvious allusion to to Moses' experience? I think that's what Peter's thinking. The knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness, he's thinking of that. I think what we can, I think it's not too far, it's not a reach to say that the power to bear the fruit of righteousness is directly related to knowing him. The power to bear the fruit of righteousness is directly related to knowing him, his glory and goodness, knowing that leads to loving, knowing him. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You know what that means? You don't bear fruit in order to know God. You know God in order to bear fruit. There's a difference, isn't there? You can make it your goal to know him. And in doing that, we'll find the power to bear the fruit of righteousness and to be the person that he would want you to be. In other words, connection and correction. We tend to believe that with God it's correction and connection, that God says, you correct those things and then we'll have a relationship. You, that anger problem, that lust problem, that greed problem, you take care of that problem, you correct that problem and then we'll have a relationship. That's backwards. It's we have a relationship and then you deal with that and then you deal with the anger and then you deal. It's correct. It's connection, then correction. That's what that's the knowing that leads to loving. It's a connection. Um, we get our gaze and glance mixed up. We get our gaze and glance mixed up. What we tend to do is we gaze at our conduct and glance at God. You know the problem with that? It's upside down. We have our gaze and glance reversed. We, we are to gaze at God and glance at conduct. That's, that's the gaze and glance proper because gazing at God will end up changing our conduct. But what we tend to do is to focus on our conduct and then gaze at God long enough to see how displeased he is with who we are. And we don't really register his glory and goodness. We glance at it. We don't really look at it. We don't gaze at it. We gaze at ourselves and go, oh, my goodness, look at this. This This isn't good. Just wait a minute. Wait, wait. I'll get this. And then we focus on conduct and our gaze and glance are upside down. The reverse is where the power comes from. No wonder... Some of us bear fruit the way the logger felled trees. No power. When our gaze and glance are turned upside down, there's no power. In order to access power, we focus on God's glory. And in the text, what it will say, how do you focus on God's glory? Show up on Mount Sinai and hope that God shows up, by the way. God's greatest display of glory did not happen on Mount Sinai. There's been a subsequent experience of glory and goodness that, that eclipses Mount Sinai the way the sun eclipses the light of the moon. Mount Calvary. 
the glory and goodness that shine from Mount Calvary caused the glory and goodness on Mount Sinai to pale into insignificance that was God on that cross. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, the power to participate in the divine nature. How do you do that? Would you agree with me that imitating the divine nature and participating in it are different things? Would you agree with me? Participating is different than imitating. It's not seeing what God wants you to do and trying hard to force yourself into that configuration. That's, we can't do that and bear the fruit of righteousness. That's why it talks about partaking of the divine nature, being caught up in who God is and God being in us, creating in us, allowing us to bear the fruit of righteousness, the power to bear the fruit of righteousness is accessed by focusing on his promises. It says the power to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil, this sinful desire. That's a good thing, isn't it? How many of you would like to escape the corruption in the world caused by sinful desire? It's the same power that allows you to participate in the divine nature participate in the divine nature, escape the corruption in the world caused by sinful desire. There's not one, there's not two different powers. There's one that does both. By his own glory and goodness, he has caused us, he has given us his very great and precious promises. It's through promises that you partake of the divine nature. It's through promises that you escape the corruption in the world. It's promises that end up allowing us to access glory and goodness, to access power, power, glory and goodness, promises. And as we plug into these promises, we are given the ability to bear the fruit of righteousness. Um, but it says, for this very reason, with Faith in glory, goodness, and promises in the foundation, with that all clearly stipulated. Faith in his glory and goodness and promises, gaze, glance, connection, correction. we clear about that. We're good? We're good with that? Are we good with that? With that in place now, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement that faith. Faith in what? Faith in glory and goodness and promises with that and supplement that with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good. Virtue 
godly knowledge. Yeah, yeah. What if it isn't working? This is all nice, Mike. Nice, but I virtue, godliness, self-control, brotherly affection, love. Hey, it's not not working. Not working. What if the fruit of righteousness isn't there? Fortunately, the text goes on to talk not only about having these qualities, but not having them, and it diagnoses the problem. Would you agree with me that you cannot treat a problem that you don't carefully diagnose? Would you agree with me? You go into the doctor's, and you give, and if he doesn't establish what the problem is, he could throw a drug at it or throw a procedure at it. The chance that you are going to be successfully treated if the problem is not carefully diagnosed is nil. The same thing spiritually. Okay, these things aren't in our life. What's the problem? Could be a number. What's the problem? I bet you can come up with a lot of them. We have a lot of reasons where we look at ourselves and say, you know what my problem is? It's, I'm selfish. It's, I just don't have the will. It's, I'm not disciplined enough. It's, I'm not having quiet times. It's this and it's that. What is it? Is that the problem? Might be. But he says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Huh. You know what the problem is? Spiritual nearsightedness. I'm nearsighted. What this means, without glasses on, see, I'm good here. If I'm really close to something, I'm fine. I can read this. Have you come to the end of yourself? Okay, I'm fine. But now, if I'm distanced from this, now, I, yeah, yeah, it, what is, is spiritual nearsightedness? What? He talks about distance causes something to be fuzzy and indistinct. What is it? that if you become fuzzy and indistinct about it, if you can't see it clearly, it will prevent you from bearing the fruit of righteousness. What is it? What is it? That if you become spiritually nearsighted with respect to this thing, and if you don't see it clearly, you will not be able to bear the fruit of righteousness. You know what it says? Well, look what the text says. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted and blind, he has forgotten that he was, what does that say? Cleansed from his former sins. Do you know what gets in the way of you bearing fruit? You don't see forgiveness the way you're used to. Remember in the beginning, Remember in the beginning when you could see it and what it felt like to be connected to God? And then over the years, then we end up losing sight of it and not even noticing that we're becoming spiritually nearsighted. And then behaviors start to fall away. 
knowledge, godliness, virtue, self-control, brotherly affection, and love. And we don't know what's wrong. All we know is that the fruit isn't there. And what Peter does, he tells us, if these qualities aren't there, here's the problem. You become spiritually nearsighted with respect to forgiveness. It's fuzzy and indistinct. That's the problem. Um, You know what the deal is with faith? Faith is only as good as its object. You have faith in what? What do you believe about him? Is there a specific thing that if you believe it about him, it will lead to the fruit of righteousness? There is. And you know what it is? That you've been cleansed from your former sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Or is it, I kind of believe it might, but it's kind of fuzzy. That's what Peter indicates is the problem. That's the problem. That's the problem. And you can't fix a problem until you diagnose it. What's the problem? You become spiritually nearsighted with respect to forgiveness. What's the solution? What's the solution then? Get that in focus. I've been cleansed from my former sins. I've been cleansed from my former sins. And you know what's going to happen? As faith rests on that, that's where it begins. It's the faith of forgiveness. That's where it begins. And if you've got that in place, you can add things to that. But if that faith isn't there, you're adding things to nothing. Right? We're supposed to focus our faith on his glory, his excellence, or goodness, and his promises. This next verse says, For God, God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God's glory and goodness was shown to Moses, and Moses reflected it, but then one came after Moses. And the light and the glory and goodness reflecting by the face of Jesus Christ, that's what's going to change you. That glory eclipses Moses' glory, the glory that shone out from him the way the sun eclipses the moon. helps us to identify, I think, promises that Peter is referencing. What promise do you need to believe? Is there, are there promises that are more important than others? Are all promises equal? There's a lot of good promises. You know them. God causes all things to work together for good. It's a great promise. Great promise. That's not the, what they'd become fuzzy about, though. I think there is one promise. And in fact, I think Jesus came to bring this promise to bear. It is shocking. Shocking promise. The new covenant promise. He came and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's the promise Jesus came to inaugurate, to set aside the old covenant to bring the new. The new covenant is greater glory. It's the glory of the new is so great that it, it makes the old covenant glory look pale by comparison. We're supposed to look at Jesus. We're supposed to look at new covenant promises. And what is that? Well, he says, look at the verse, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And the least of them to the greatest. And it comes to this point, 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Oh, hmm. I will be merciful to their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. We're supposed to believe that. We're supposed to believe that. And if we believe that, what do we end up bearing? The fruit of righteousness. If we lose sight of that, what happens? We become nearsighted and blind and we forget. We talk about, well, I'll be merciful, literally. It says, I will be helios. Helios is a word we talk about every once in a while. It means to be gracious, favorable, cheerful, and benevolent. I will be gracious, favorable, cheerful, and benevolent when you commit unrighteousnesses. Non-reactive. So what that means is if God is smiling at you, and that you do think or say something wrong, God does not go from uh, to... <laughs> he doesn't do that. That there really has been forgiveness. It's, it's what the new covenant brings. And, and when that is clear, when we see glory and goodness reflected, not in the old covenant, but in the new, not in Christ, not in Moses' face, but in Christ's face. Um, you know what a Christian does? Know what a Christian places their faith in? Jesus. Okay. What about Jesus? What about him? That he's God? Okay. Yep, he's God. Anything specifically? Jesus is God. Died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? This is the in my blood. This is the what? This is the and you know what? Why would to believe in Jesus? We're to believe in Jesus because then believing in Jesus, we believe that he had the authority to bring a new covenant. And you know what that new covenant says? I will be helios to your unrighteousnesses and will remember your sins no more. What happens when we place our faith in that? We can add to that faith virtue. And to virtue self-control. And to self-control brotherly affection. And to brotherly, and what happens when we become nearsighted about that? What happens when we become nearsighted? Whole foundation's gone. And you have nothing to supplement faith because your faith is only as good as its object. We need to be clear about what the object of our faith is. Don't we? So we don't become nearsighted about it. What are we supposed to put our faith in? New covenant promises. That's what Jesus came to inaugurate. Um, the promises that produce fruit are new covenant promises. The glory that produces fruit is new covenant glory. In Paul's words, this knowing leads to loving. Knowing what? New covenant promises. New covenant glory. If you've lost sight of forgiveness, you've lost sight of the new covenant. Anyone who bears the fruit of righteousness must experience this power by focusing on the new covenant. Uh, progress comes to a halt. A lot of reasons could be considered, but one reason is at the root of it. And what's that? This is happening. You become nearsighted. Forgiveness is fuzzy. Faith is without foundation. And the whole building is tottering. Put it in place. Put your faith in 
God's glory because faith in God's glory fills love. And fear of God's judgment kills love. Fear of God's judgment kills love. It says in 1 John 4, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Perfect love casts out fear. Not just any fear here. It's not just, if you, okay, if you believe in Jesus, you won't be scared of the dark. You know, some of us are going to be afraid of the dark. Some of us are going to be afraid of horror movies. Some of us are afraid of getting old. Some of us, that's not it. The, this is a specific kind of fear here that perfect love casts out. A fear that gets in the way of fruit bearing. It's the fear of divine retribution. That's the fear it's talking about because it says fear has to do with punishment. In the context, this is the fear of divine retribution. To the degree we fear God's judgment, we cannot love fully. I'm going to say that again. To the degree we fear God's judgment and retribution, we cannot bear the fruit of righteousness. Our faith has no concrete object. It's off of the new covenant. Because, again, the New Covenant says there is forgiveness. And if that becomes fuzzy, you understand. Um, Peter makes the same point. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted and blind that he is having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Uh, There is no fear in love. Okay. Fruit of righteousness, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Question. As you, as you think about that list, do you see that fruit in increasing measure? If you do, it will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. You will find effectiveness and productivity if these things are increasing. You say, Mike, I don't see it. I... It's not working. What's the power? I'm, it's just, it's not, I just, I get it to work. Okay. What is the problem? What's the problem? Nearsightedness. You've lost sight of forgiveness. On this side of the cross, God's glory and goodness are reflected in the new covenant promise of forgiveness. I will be Helios. Gracious, favorable, merciful, benevolent to your unrighteousnesses. He wants you to place your faith in this. This is why Jesus came. It's why he went to the cross to be able to enact this and to give you this promise. And if you believe, well, you know what believing it will do? Believing that will make you a Christian. A Christian believes in the new covenant promise because they believe that Jesus is God and he could bring a new covenant. Believing that will empower you to bear the fruit of righteousness. Believing that will promote a knowing that will lead to loving. Father, thank you for clearly specifying what our faith focuses on and what it 
is to rest on. I ask that we would um, be more and more gaze at your glory and goodness and promises and glance at our conduct, that we get our gaze and glance in proper perspective so that we could understand that you operate by connection and correction so that we could, by looking at your glory and goodness and focusing on your promises that we could become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires and that we could add things and bear fruit, bear the fruit of righteousness. For Jesus' sake, amen.